American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in-depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review Editor-in-Chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober-minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. James Comer drops another bombshell, and will the debate disappoint? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is still roaming the vast and varied land out there, but he will be back next week. In his absence, we're joined by Charles C.W. Cook, Phil Klein, and introducing to the show, William F. Buckley Fellow in Political Journalism, Haley Strack. You're, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Moink and Made In. More on them in a little bit. If for some reason you are not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer drops yet another of these metronomic releases uh, regarding information about the disquieting scandal surrounding the Biden family influence uh, peddling allegations. Comer and company now allege that President Joe Biden used a pseudonym, Robert L. Peters, whenever he served, when he served as a vice president, uh, in communications with outside figures, including his son, Hunter Biden. Uh, Comer has sought the release of documents from the National Archives uh, quote, in which then-Vice President Joe Biden used a pseudonym. Hunter, uh, Hunter Biden, Eric Schwerin, and Devin Archer are copied, and all drafts of then-Vice President Biden's speeches delivered to the Ukrainian Rada, that's the Ukrainian Parliament, in 2015. That's kind of specific. And all of this is very disquieting. It follows revelations involving some $20 million in payments that Joe Biden, uh, son Hunter Biden received when Joe Biden was vice president, and the discovery that Hunter Biden wasn't providing his clients with the illusion of access to the VP at all, he delivered that access. Charlie, you wrote up your thoughts uh, on this development yesterday for National Review, and I think you pretty charitably tried to think of the most anodyne rationale for why the vice president would use a pseudonym in these conversations. What did that exercise in generosity produce? Nothing. <laughs> Rick, you guys know me and the way that I see accusations. I am fairly generous in trying to find plausible reasons why someone could have done something or why the evidence that we have doesn't suggest criminal or immoral behavior. I also think as a matter of political reality... Those who are investigating Joe Biden, and if it comes to it, the Republicans who try to press a case against him or even to impeach him are going to have to think through what the potential counter arguments will be and how persuasive they will sound. 
to members of the voting public who probably don't want to think of the president as corrupt. But my efforts yesterday to conceive of a reason why, if it is true, the president at the time, vice president of the United States, should be using a pseudonym to exchange emails with Burisma and his son, well, that search was fruitless. As I wrote, I think that the question now for James Comer is whether he is right, is whether he has evidence to substantiate the various building blocks that he has assembled atop one another. Because we have moved very, very quickly in this investigation into Joe Biden and his relationship with his son and his son's business dealings from there was no connection whatsoever. That was said not just by Joe Biden's defenders, but by Joe Biden himself. To, well, there was a connection between Joe Biden and his son's business, but that connection was innocent which was the argument made most recently when it was revealed that Biden had hopped onto at least 20 phone calls with his son and his son's business partners, but had talked about nothing more interesting than the weather. To the latest rejoinder, which is there is no direct proof that Biden was paid off here, which is true, or at least is arguable. But if this is true, Noah, if indeed... Having told the public that he at no point engaged with his son's business dealings, that at no point was he privy to his son's business dealings, if it turns out that he not only sent emails to and fro, but that he did so under a pseudonym that would have, and clearly did, evade FOIA requests and the usual surveillance, I can't think of a good reason for that, in the same way that I can't think of a good reason for the Biden family to have set up a chain of shell companies. And I can't think of a good reason for Biden to have invited his son Hunter onto Air Force Two to fly to China and then meet with Hunter's business partners in China, who it turns out were connected with the Chinese Communist Party. So it seems to me that we have moved now out of a pattern of, well, is there anything there? And into a pattern of, if the facts that James Comer is alleging turn out to be correct, what possible excuse could there be for them? So, Phil, we, during, during the editorial call we were this morning, <clears throat> we were trying to hash out at least trying to think of a way in which a clever Democrat invested in diffusing these allegations would do so, because they are going to need to think of some sort of exculpatory rationale for why the vice president would try to disguise his identity in conversations with his son's business partners. And the only thing I could think of is, well, this is how he would seek to avoid the appearance of influence peddling, because now his interlocutors on the other end of this thing don't know who they're talking with, and they're trying. This isn't about evading, you know, fire requests, as, as Charlie said. It's just about trying to maintain the appearance of impropriety or propriety here, uh, 
is there a better rationale than that? I mean, I I understand that is about as thin as it could possibly get, but what else? I mean, I, I think that we're being too narrow-minded here. I mean, if you're Joe Biden and you're the vice president and you're dropping bombs about the weather and you have some really <laughs> controversial views about what, you know, what the sky is looking like that day, you're going to want to disguise it. I mean, let's be honest here. Who, who hasn't disguised their messages about the weather? Um, but in all seriousness, I, I think that this is really going to come down to an issue of both siderisms. I mean, you, you already looked at, you, we've already seen from Jonathan Chait and others trying to liken the uh, Biden scandal to the non-scandal of um, Clarence Thomas and Supreme Court justices. And you're obviously, this is another reason why they're desperate for Trump to be the nominee, because if Trump's the nominee, it doesn't matter what the details are, because they'll just say, well, you know, look at what Trump did. And that will be the focus and that that will be the big diversion. So I think that, and there's sort of a lot of, you know, the typical goalpost moving, right? I mean, we got from, there, there was no contact. He had no idea what Hunter was doing. He lives his own life. I had no, um, I was, wasn't involved with any of this stuff to, well, he wasn't in business with him to, he never spoke to these people to, he spoke to them over 20 times, but it was just about the weather. Um, so there will be some degree of, well, we knew this already. Like, we knew this already, but it doesn't matter because, oh, look over there. Look what this new revelation about uh, the Trump case. Um, and so, so, Yeah, and it's always the cover-up, right? And what else explains, I mean, obviously, the the immunity deal that was supposed to, you know, provide Hunter Biden with this real excess immunity and then was just blew up upon contact with the judge was an attempt to cover it up. And I don't know what else explains this ABC News Ipsos poll this week that shows only 32% of adults have the uh, confidence in the DOJ to conduct the Hunter investigation non- in a nonpartisan and impartial fashion besides the implosion of the plea deal. It's not like the press is covering this aggressively, but they they can't help but notice that the Justice Department is saying, well, we kind of don't know how to handle this anymore, and now we have to go to trial, and we didn't want to in the first place. It's it's impossible not to notice that. Yeah, and I, no. I think that this is where <clears throat> the sort of, the whole Trump angle could get complicated for them, because in the one hand, obviously, as Charlie has has written, it's a huge problem for Republicans to go into the uh, general election with Trump as the nominee, given that the general public doesn't have the same attitude toward these various indictments that the Republican base does. Um, However, another angle to that is that a lot of these indictments are baked into Trump's numbers. And a certain people believe that Trump's corrupt, that he's done bad and criminal things and so forth. A certain number of people feel like he's been unfairly targeted. That is, those numbers aren't going to hugely change. Whereas Biden, it, part of his appeal is supposed to be that he's the antidote to Trump. He 
he moves us back toward an era where um, we had you know, more regular politicians who, you know, maybe even if you don't disagree with him, he's going to, you know, just not be as corrupt and, and brazen as Trump. But if more and more of this stuff becomes substantiated in a way that's harder for uh, partisans to easily dismiss, that could really be a big problem for Biden because then he's sort of the really old guy who's noticeably declining physically and mentally. And, oh, on top of that, he's, he's involved in this massive bribery scandal where he was letting his son rake in millions of dollars and he was the the product in this um um scheme to um you know to to sell influence and in fact he personally enriched himself again if we we don't know how much is going to be substantiated but if more of that gets substantiated it really makes it harder to portray Biden is just this sort of lovable grandpa who eats, likes to eat ice cream. And let's talk about what flavor ice cream he got this time. So speaking of that, Haley, we saw, it's not like the mainstream media is not covering this uh, insofar as they want to try to diffuse it. They can't exactly ignore it. But the Washington Post touched on it peripherally in this piece on how Hunter Biden's troubles are resonating inside the White House and around the West Wing. And they lard up this piece with all this treacly paternal sentiment that su- was supposed to diffuse this scandal. It doesn't anymore. I don't, if it ever did, this fatherly sentiment that's attributable to Joe Biden is the the reward that he was receiving, even if he wasn't getting anything material, and we can't say that he wasn't yet. But by using his influence in this way, his remuneration material or otherwise, was his son's well-being. It's what he says. It's what, it just makes sense. But anyway, the White House, or the least Democratic operatives think that his affection for his son somehow diffuses this scandal. But that piece did note that there's a lot of siloing of Hunter's issues in the White House, that the president is insulated from them, he doesn't want to hear anything about him, and even that senior staff didn't know that Hunter Biden was living at the White House for two weeks this summer, or at least two weeks, that's when they didn't know. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the president is as insulated from this as reporting suggests? Or is this just more of an effort on the White House's part to say Joe Biden wasn't anywhere near it? I think it's hard to assess Joe Biden's complacentness with this, especially because we, you know, we don't have many good examples anymore of just how competent he might be. But I think to your point about just the press covering this issue terribly, this might have less to do with Joe Biden's eventual excuse and how much Joe Biden actually knew and more to do with how the media portrays the situation. I think the New York Times, it was, ran a story this week about Comer's investigation and said, the details are not pretty which might be, you know, the biggest understatement we've seen since Russia and Donald Trump. But the details are not pretty. And the average American isn't paying attention to the details in this case. If you go back and try to follow Comer's whole investigation, it gets muddy and it gets it gets impossible almost to follow. So I think the father's love excuse 
does go far for people who haven't been following the Hunter Biden scandal as well as they should, in part because the media isn't covering it. And, you know, as Charlie mentioned, this is about the relationship with Joe Biden's son, between Joe Biden and his son, Hunter, and also his son's business dealings. I think that if prompted, the average American, when corporate media does its job well enough, as it already is, will focus more on the relationship aspect. So that poll, that Wall Street, the ABC News Ipsos poll, just, I thought it was really significant. Because you don't get a number that low, 32%, on an issue so charged, so partisan, where the where the obvious indications and the priming that you get from the press on this issue is to retreat to your partisan corners. You don't get a, a number that low. I mean, 48% said they had no confidence in the, in the Justice Department to competently handle this case in a nonpartisan fashion. They didn't break down by party ID what that answer who was contributing to that answer. But I don't think you get a number like that without a lot of independents moving against the the White House's position. And even a fair, significant number of Democrats, a measurable number of Democrats. And this is happening in the absence of the press goading the public towards a conclusion that they would prefer. So all these opinions are being formed organically. And that suggests to me they will calculate calcify into something pretty firm in the absence of a counter-narrative from Democrats. And Democrats aren't retailing a counter-narrative. Maybe they don't have a counter-narrative, certainly one that isn't plausible, as we just tried to do here. But without it, they've ceded the story to Republicans. Republicans have total command of the story, and Republicans are running up real momentum, real momentum with this runway in a way that Democrats are probably going to resent, or, uh, or rather have some frustrations with, if it continues along this trajectory, because by the time they get their shoes on to try to shift the narrative, it may already be too late. Um, But let's take a break. Let's step back here for a second and talk to you about our first sponsor of the day, Moink. Take it away, Charlie. Well, did you know that 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company, and that company is owned by the Chinese, and... Their hogs are given something called ractopamine, which is banned in 160 countries, including China. And yet you will find it in your grocery aisle every day. But there is a better way. And I would like to tell you about Moink, which I subscribe to myself, of which I am an enormous fan ahead in the fandom stakes of Sarah Shetty, who's just squeaking in at number two. That's because Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and delivers it straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should, because the family farm does it better. I have a horrible, horrible feeling that I have spoiled my five-year-old. Now, he thinks that all meat is going to taste like moink meat, and of course it doesn't, and then he gives us a look. Why doesn't this taste as good as moink? The difference, as I say, is one that you and he and everyone can taste while feeling good knowing that you're helping family farms stay financially independent. Now, how this works, a little bit like Netflix. You subscribe every month and then you choose what it is that you want to watch or in this case what you want delivered to your door. 
in every box. You can pick from ribeyes to chicken breasts to pork chops to salmon fillets and much more. And of course, you can cancel any time, although you want, won't want to. Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moink's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted, and the founder of the Ring Doorbell, Jamie Simonoff, jumped at the chance to invest in Moink. So if you want to help keep American farming going, you could sign up at moinkbox.com slash editors right now. And if you do, you will get free ground beef for a whole year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time, it's spelt moink, it's M-O-I-N-K, box.com slash editors. That's moinkbox.com slash editors. Thank you, Charlie. So the New York Times ran a piece yesterday about a extremely frustrating memo out of the extended Ron DeSantis universe uh, relating to the candidate's debate prep. The memo was produced by Axiom Strategies, which is the firm owned by Jeff Rowe, who also heads Ron DeSantis's the pro-DeSantis Never Back Down PAC. And the memo urges Ron DeSantis to spend the debate on the attack, which makes a lot of sense. Attack Joe Biden, attack the media, definitely attack Vivek Ramaswamy, and attack Chris Christie. But don't really attack Donald Trump. Indeed, quote, defend Donald Trump in absentia in response to a Chris Christie attack. Now, the memo doesn't go, say, doesn't take hands off Donald Trump. It does say if he's not on the stage to go hard on his absence, say he's too scared. And it says that he faces a lot of legal, quote, distractions. And he's just too, dis- too beset by the forces that be to run for the White House, the poor guy. But the strategy here is pretty obviously Ted Cruz's 2016 approach. Make yourself into the most viable Trump alternative, clear the field, and then take on Trump one-on-one when everybody else is gone. But that day never comes. So it is, to put it as kindly as I can, a very stupid strategy. Phil, this comes on the heels of a release by a piece uh, from The New Yorker's Benjamin Wallace Wells alleging that when the Ron DeSantis PAC tried to test some anti-Trump messages on, of all things, lockdowns, calling them the Trump lockdowns, they found that Republican voters flipped on a dime and suddenly love lockdowns. So the campaign's memo, or at least the PAC's memos and people in the orbit of Ron DeSantis are trying to tell us through these leaks that they don't think Donald Trump can lose, which if, is, if, if that is their genuine view, it makes a lot of sense to retail that from your perspective as a, a political operative so you don't get the blame for what happens because it's inevitable. But you kind of have to try, right? Ron DeSantis is in this race. There's no going back. So if you're going to lose maybe try to lose with some dignity? So basically, I think one caveat that we should have is that this memo came from the super PAC, um, which isn't the campaign and can't legally coordinate with the campaign. So we're not sure how much this reflects the thinking within the DeSantis campaign itself. Right. What happens Uh, is they just release this publicly because they can't coordinate just yeah. why everybody has their hands on it. Yes. Je- the Jeff Rowe and the PAC have taken on an outsized role in crafting strategy for this campaign by all reports. Yes, especially because of the money issue, which is that the, the Super PAC has a lot more money than the campaign. Um, but I, I think that with that said, I, I don't think that you need to look 
add a, a secret memo to, or a not-so-secret memo to get a sense of what the DeSantis strategy has been, because it's not been, uh, to, it, it's been very careful about not wanting to criticize Trump from the left or um, anything that could be perceived as echoing the attacks of CNN or the mainstream media or so forth. So any criticisms of him. So it's fine to criticize him for, you know, playing footsie with Fauci and for play for um, the criminal justice reform for not building the border wall, because those are all attacks from the right. But if you talk about uh, January 6th um, or say that there's any credence in any of the information coming out of the indictments, if you say anything uh, other than this is a witch hunt, then you're essentially risking being lumped in together with the Jim Acostas of the world. And so... um, the the pro- the problem for DeSantis, as I've written before, is that it, Trump doesn't think that way at all. He latches on to any attack. He's attacked DeSantis on COVID deaths and saying that Andrew Cuomo's COVID policy was better than DeSantis. He's attacked DeSantis for um, past support for reforming entitlements. He's attacked DeSantis uh, for... Um, signing a six-week abortion ban and saying it's too harsh. He's um, his surrogates attacked uh, DeSantis over um, and echoed Kamala Harris's view of the whole slavery curriculum in Florida. So the Trump campaign has no qualms about just grasping on to whatever attack uh, DeSantis is going through. They don't have any reason to jump in and say, well, it's not really fair. We're, we don't like this. We're running against DeSantis, but we think that the way the slavery curriculum in Florida is being portrayed is unfair. They don't have any reason to do that. So why should DeSantis play that game? And, and if his view is that he, he's too weak and, and Trump is too strong, um, to be able to criticize him um, when there are aspects of the indictments, even if you don't support everything in every indictment, there's aspects of things where you can certainly say that this behavior is not worthy of someone being president, or certainly that you know it doesn't mean if you get indicted that it makes you a stronger candidate, right? Um, and certainly... In a debate, you don't even, when Trump's not there, even if you don't necessarily attack Trump, you don't have to defend him, right? <laughs> so if you say, I'm not going to attack him, you don't have to defend him if Chris Christie wants to go after Trump. So um, to me, it's just bizarre. If, you, if your view of the race is that Trump is not untouchable and that he's impervious to any negative information at all, then what are we even doing here? What are we talking about? Like, why didn't you just wait until 2028? Yeah, that's kind of my thinking. I wrote a little bit about this yesterday on the corner that if you really genuinely believe that he can't be beat, stop wasting everybody's time and your donor's money. Um, But Haley, Phil definitely touched on 
the paradox here, and and there is some public polling around this to suggest that I don't know if there's there's pushback from the campaign about whether or not this leak about lockdowns and testing Ron DeSantis and negative messages about Donald Trump is actually as bad as that. Whereas seventy percent of Republicans hate lockdowns and you said they're Trump lockdowns, and seventy percent of Republicans love lockdowns. And there's some pushback from the campaign about whether that's true or not. But there is some indication from public polling that Republicans don't evaluate Donald Trump as they would anybody else in their lives, a family member, a service provider, an employee, what have you. They just, they hear criticisms of him and they evaluate them as criticisms of themselves. And that's impossible to run against. But he has to. And if this strategy that they're retailing here in this memo materializes next week on the debate stage, presuming Trump's absence, or even if he's there, he looks like a pre-programmed robot and a doormat, a robotic doormat. This can't be good for his brand. His whole brand is, I'll take on all comers. What political career does he have to return to in Florida if he loses and loses in this embarrassing a fashion? Well, that's the point, isn't it? He didn't have to run. He didn't necessarily have to run, but he chose to. And if he chooses to run again, this is what's going to be running through our mind is that he wasn't strong enough to even try to beat the front runner. So why did he enter the race in the first place? Um, I think that defending Trump obviously isn't working, as you said, for DeSantis's personal brand. He's been attacked in the media a lot already for being a robot and not being able to say what he actually thinks. I think on a debate stage, DeSantis is very good on the issues. And if you put him up there, he'll he'll do well. But I mean, it's disingenuous for him not to attack Trump. And you can not only see it in his campaign strategy, but in his personality as well, which might just make him or render him moot as a politician in the future. I just, I can't imagine that the data that they had ahead of this race is indicative of what we're hearing out of the campaign now, because then they wouldn't have pulled the trigger. It would have been a suicide mission. And as you say, Ron DeSantis and his operation are far too competent for that to make any sense. Charlie, you, without putting words in your mouth, you think I'm being a little too unkind to Ron DeSantis and the people in his orbit, and really voters are to blame here. I just don't know the answer is my problem. I don't know what it's going to take to convince the Republican primary electorate that Donald Trump is not its best option. We've now seen four indictments. It's made no difference. We have seen a successful Republican, Brian Kemp, called Trump's bluff. It's made no difference. We have seen the contrast between candidates that are tied in the public's imagination to Trump and candidates that are not in the 2022 midterms, and it's made no difference. We have seen the introduction into the race of Ron DeSantis, who won in Florida, traditionally a swing state by 20 points. And it's made no difference. And as a result, while the case that you keep making and that you just outlined makes sense to me as somebody who thinks that Trump is absolutely open to criticism, I don't know if it will work. I don't know if it's true to say that's how you win. And if you don't do this, you may as well not be running. I'm afraid that I can construct a case in both directions here. I could see the necessity 
for Ron DeSantis to say here are all of the problems with Donald Trump in the way that he has been, give him some credit, on the campaign trail pointing out that Donald Trump contributed to inflation with the CARES Act and that he kept Fauci around and that he didn't build the wall and that he didn't drain the swamp and so on and so forth. I could see that argument. Traditionally, you would imagine that if you want to beat someone who is regarded by the voting base as a de facto incumbent, you would need to go after them. I could also see a situation in which it was true, regrettably true, but true nevertheless, that the only way to have a chance at prevailing is to leave Trump alone and present yourself as a better alternative among people who just don't want to hear him lambasted. So I don't know, Noah. It's not that I necessarily think you're wrong. It's that I'm not sure how Ron DeSantis should navigate it. And therefore, I'm less likely than you to throw my hands up and say, well, why bother running? Or to assume prima facie that this memo is flawed. And I understand the impulse to not second guess. This is a pretty thorny, perhaps unnavigable landscape. But we do have evidence that the strategy that's being retailed here has failed because it has failed repeatedly and routinely. And to resurrect it, especially from, you know, to resurrect Ted Cruz's strategy from the people who ran Ted Cruz's 2016 campaign smells horrible to me. It's not that this has worked. It's that we don't know whether the alternative would have been worse. And I'm just saying to you that I find the monomaniacal stickiness of the Republican primary electorate's support for Donald Trump absolutely incomprehensible. And therefore, I find it very difficult to answer questions <laughs> with any authority about how one can get around it, because I just don't know. Okay, so, well, with that being said, we're let's do some really incredibly speculative exit question here. There are no wrong answers, so feel free to embarrass yourself. I certainly will. Uh, the, the memo here is predicated on a couple of assumptions, and one of them being that Trump won't be there. Trump won't be at the debate. So double-barreled exit question for you, Phil. Donald Trump, A, won't be at the debate, and B, will execute the strategy in this memo by taking opportunities to defend Donald Trump's honor in absentia. So, A, I, I don't think Trump will go. Um, and B, I don't think that at this point he could get away with doing the, the strategies as outlined in the memo without looking without opening himself to the robot Rubio attack. So he won't execute the strategy in this memo? No. Okay. Haley, Trump won't be there, and Ron DeSantis will be a robot doormat. I am going to agree wholeheartedly with Phil on this one. Won't be there. We'll take opportunities to defend Donald Trump's honor. Charlie. I don't think that Trump will be there. I think if... DeSantis executes anything, it will be a softer version of what is in the memo along the lines that we've already seen, which is saying we don't want to go back to the old Republican Party. 
I liked Donald Trump and was a big supporter, but here are all the reasons why he's not the right choice now, and I am. I could see that being cast as a defense. I don't think he's going to offer up a full-throated apology for Donald Trump in absentia. And if he does, then I think he will have made a profound mistake. I'm going to strike out on my own a little bit here. I've always thought that he would show up at this debate until I saw any evidence that the Trump campaign was preparing some sort of counter-programming for Wednesday's debate, something like the fraudulent fundraiser that he threw for veterans to counter-program the Fox News debate in 2016. And I hadn't seen that until yesterday or two days ago when CNN said, reported from people close to Trump's orbit, that they were considering ways to counter-program the debate if Trump didn't show up. But they were so rinky-dink. It was like calling into a, a rival cable news network, which just sounded really unequal to the to the scale of the moment. So I'm so unimpressed with their counter-programming ideas that I still think that they're genuinely undecided about the debate, and I think last minute they will they will cave and show up. Um, there's a 60-40% chance that Donald Trump will be there. And if he is there, that nullifies the memo. If he is not there, I think Ron DeSantis will take the opportunity to defend Donald Trump's honor, but perhaps not, not in the way that this memo suggests. Like, he's not here, so it's so unfair to attack him. Because Ron DeSantis will lay, lay, lay some blows on his own against Donald Trump, but he will definitely defend him when it comes to the indictments, for example, in some other areas. So it's kind of a mixed verdict for me, but I, I still think he'll be there. And I don't know if this memo is going to materialize. But if it reflects the thinking within the Ron DeSantis campaign, it is very depressing. Let's take another break, real quick, to hear from our second sponsor today, Made in Cookware. Made in has spoken to a lot of people who use their cookware, and they have found that people consistently say two things— about made-in cookware. One, they can feel the difference when using made-in products. And two, they can taste the difference in their cooking. This is multi-generational craftsmanship. It is born from a 100-year-old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supplies. Made-in works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Discover your best dinners ahead with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware. People can feel and taste the difference. Made-in's award-winning nonstick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade nonstick coating. Made-in stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. Made-in's carbon steel cookware that can handle up to 1,200 degrees and is perfect for cooking on your stove, grill, or even an open flame, plus an extensive collection of knives, bakeware, glassware, plateware, and more are available to made-in customers. Listeners can get 10% off full-priced items and orders of $100 or more from made-in. For full details, visit madeincookware.com editors. That's madeincookware.com editors. So Haley, we really wanted to have you on today so we could step back a little bit from the very depressing political day-to-day -day, uh, and pivot to something that is maybe just as depressing, but in a less existential way than the fact that we are careening rapidly towards a presidential contest between two criminal enterprises. So we wanted to look at something that you've been taking a very 
a detailed look at, which is the summer's hottest social media trends. Uh, some of them, which are really shocking, bizarre, and probably not actually really trends. Um, I think, Haley, you've said that you have uh, a pretty healthy relationship with screens and are not a TikTok addict yourself, right? I actually am only on Twitter. So oh, exactly, as am I. yes. Yeah, for that for that very purpose, your your sanity and your eternal soul. Um, why don't you start by telling us what the heck Rat Girl Summer is, which I think is as disturbing as it sounds. It really is. Uh, as you mentioned, we've you know done some very serious reporting on TikTok trends, which I fear has given some of our readers another excuse to call National Review out of, out of touch, as they sometimes uh, love doing. But I think this Rat Girl Summer TikTok trend, which of course comes straight after Hot Girl Summer, which some of you might be uh, familiar with, is one of the craziest trends to hit TikTok. And I think, you know, we make an argument for why people should care about these trends. Specifically, the rat girl phenomena is all about, you know, living your best life, having fun no matter what it costs. And I, I was a little skeptical that this trend would actually make it big until hordes of women in Brooklyn, New York, all gathered together for Rat Girl Summer a couple of weeks weeks ago. Uh, there were there were rules for the meetup, and I, I would love to read some of them just to give you a bit of a, a view of what this gathering was like. Um, the four rules for Rat Girl Summer are spend most of your time out of your home, but allow yourself two days a week to decay and scroll social media in bed. <laughs> Eat enjoyable and nourishing food that gives you energy to cause mayhem. Let yourself be ruled by whimsy rather than embarrassment. And most importantly, don't overthink. If rats don't think twice before stealing a slice of pizza and escaping across the subway platform, why should rat girls? And I think, I mean, the, the most concerning part about this trend is, as we see in, in New York, is that they're coming offline. It also doesn't help that in 20 years, these rat girls and this rat pack will grow up and be expected to raise children of their own. Uh, there's also a bed rot trend we reported on. Right, right, right. Yeah. So this mm -hmm. dovetails with it, which sounds a lot like a diagnosis, a bad one, but it's actually a prescription. Uh, it appears so. Yeah. The idea of eternal decay is really attractive to people in my in my generation, which is very, very scary. Uh, but, you know, bringing children back into it. There's also an NPC streaming trend, which Could the Washington you Post explain the bed rat trend. Bed rot, yes. I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. A lot of kids now take mental health days off of school, which you know some could argue are necessary in some cases. We're seeing a huge, you know, increase in depression. But the bed rot trend specifically encourages kids to stay home from school or even young young people to stay home from work and rot away in bed all day, watching a screen or binge watching a show on Netflix and eating junk food to their heart's content. Just sounds decadent. <laughs> it does until you've missed a week of work and have no excuse. <laughs> so before we get on to the most decadent and dystopian nightmare of them all, which you just teased, what is girl dinner, which sounds pretty anodyne, just women eating? Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not women eating, which is the problem. It's been a it's a fun new little trend that normalizes having maybe a few scraps or a few crackers for dinner or even a can of Diet Coke or and, and a glass of wine and passing it off as, as girl dinner. 
And, you know, it's fun and dainty and it's a catchy phrase, but it really is encouraging eating disorders, which is already, you know, they're already not helped by TikTok and by body deformity on social media. Really, it's like Judy Garland's meals, if you could call them that, that and barbiturates. Right. And um, your, your 13 inch waist, you know, it's not going to hold up long. So what is the worst of all of them? NPC streaming. NPC streaming is a whole nother category. It is the intersection between sex work and gaming, and I think is really the culmination of why these TikTok trends are so dangerous. So online, there I don't even know how to really describe it, and I encourage you actually not to look it up for yourself. <laughs> um, but TikTok has a feature where you can tip live streamers. So there are live streamers enacting... Uh, non-playable characters, which are basically characters that you interact with in video games. So first, there was the main character trend. And everyone was saying, I'm living my life as a main character, and I'm free to do whatever I want. And along came non-playable characters, which you can tip to perform different actions for you online. And it's in many cases perverse. The most popular NPC streamer started an OnlyFans, of course, and then got very enraged and is now planning to sue people who are distributing pornography of hers online um, because she didn't she didn't know such a thing was was possible when you put those images of yourself on the internet, which is sad and terrible, but shows that you know what people might see as a harmless TikTok trend of NPC streaming really can have awful implications. So, Phil, uh, my instinct here is that these are just curiosities, weird habits engaged in by really unrepresentative segments of the population. It's a stretch to call them trends. But the press does this. It's not like Haley's out there trolling TikTok to find the latest trends and consuming them herself. They come to her by way of the press, mainstream media outlets, which make these trend fake trends into trends. They're not real trends, are they? Is this just clicks and revenue? Or are we really talking about the degradation of society at a rapid clip? I don't know. I mean, I think that there definitely is a media genre that we'll see on people writing about TikTok or Twitter where a few people post something and then they say, oh, this is a new trend that's sweeping the world. Um, but I will say that it, if we're looking for more... Um, reasons to study the decay of society. I mean, it used to be, back in the day, there there would be it's things that were like ice bucket challenge, you know, it just, it raised money. For charity, it to was, benefit yeah, ALS. Raise money for charity. Um, then you had these trends like people eating Tide Pods, where if you say that, it's like, okay, well, that's a Darwin Award, right? Like, people, it's it's like natural selection. Like, a bunch of idiots are, are seeing videos and eating Tide Pods. Um, but now, it's like, they're actually doing real harm to other people. Like, the rat girls are going or scurrying around and stealing food and stuff. And then, I mean, there's actually, in many cities, been a spike in car checking that's been tied to TikTok and various TikTok videos uh, explaining different ways to carjack and to steal cars and certain cars are more vulnerable to, to certain tactics and so forth. So this is just sort of getting much worse than, you know, even just 
sort of silly pranks that, that are gaining traction. Yeah, Charlie, Phil just outlined why this is real and dangerous and something we should be concerned about. And it's certainly a compelling rationale for rocketing this generation of Americans directly into the sun. But I have a sneaking suspicion that some of this is designed only to flatter the pretensions of their elders. Like, we did plenty of stupid stuff, too. We just couldn't tape most of it for technological constraints. So I wonder if we're really looking at some new profound change in how we organize criminal activity uh, or and, 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 you know, spend our free time, or whether this these trends are inflated in the press because they generate a lot of traction among people who look at them as sort of a justification for their own sense of self. It makes them feel better about themselves and their generation. You know what I think? I think that this is the equivalent of the way in which the press obsesses about universities while ignoring that millions of people can't read. There are obviously problems among young people that are caused or exacerbated by the internet. And these are almost certainly very, very far down the list, but they get the attention because they interest the people who write the headlines. It seems to me that the focus on this is a New York Post habit, whereas I'm much more alarmed by the news that considerable percentages of young women or young girls are unhappy and depressed because they spend a lot of time online and the social pressures there are crushing. So I am a little bit out of touch on this one because I consider it all ephemera compared to the actual downsides of the web. I don't think we have a very large demo of young teenage girls listening to this thing, but if you are listening to this thing, don't get bed sores for fun. It's not fun. And it's definitely not something that will advance any of your objectives in life. But yes, there is a, a healthy level of curiosity here, in part because all of these are very curious behaviors, and they're seeking attention, so they have got them. Uh, with that, let's move on to a couple of lighter things for heading into this weekend. Uh, again, didn't survey the, the audience here, didn't survey our, our, uh, our co-panelists about what happened to them this week that was uh, enjoyable, so I'm completely in the dark, Charlie. What have you got going on? Well, I have been listening to Huckleberry Finn on Audible, as read by Elijah Wood. I would not have assumed Elijah Wood would have recorded Huckleberry Finn for Audible, but he did, and he does all of the voices. It's absolutely terrific. I've been listening to it when walking. If you have an Audible account, I would suggest uh, you to listen to it. It's one of their flagship shows. And 
I hadn't listened to the book for a while. I hadn't read the book for a while, I should say. But um, two things really struck out at me. One is that uh, it, it is a masterpiece. And the other is that when you hear the N-word casually used, as it is in the book, it really does hit you in the face. Uh, I, I don't want it excised. It's part of the book. It's in there for a reason. It's used deliberately, and it should, in some circumstances, hit you in the face. But it does hit you in the face. And I, I've been thinking as I've been on my morning walks, this is a good example of why you don't want to boulderize books, why you don't want to sanitize them. Because the, the being hit in the face by the use of that word uh, is actually a, a didactic experience. So uh, Elijah Wood's recording of Huckleberry Finn on Audible, if you have the service, take a listen. That is a point that my former colleague at Commentary, Abe Greenwald, has made repeatedly that it would be bizarre to, A, want to sanitize, for example, all of history's works uh, in uh, references to anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic references in them because they're everywhere. It was a very common sentiment. And two, it's a it, to survey them from our remove, our historical remove, gives you a sense of what was overcome, not what right. prevails today. And to sanitize that is to rob us of a proper historical education. Phil, what's up with you? So uh, oftentimes on this podcast, I end up talking about my meat-making adventures. Um, so I have some prep work coming up, which is that um, – so in uh, next month is Rosh Hashanah. And the last few years, we've had smaller crowds, so I've just been making braised short rib instead of a large brisket for like 10, 12 people. So – Every year there's this one recipe by the celebrity chef Thomas Keller that for braised short rib that's super intimidating to make because it requires all of these side quests to make um, um, all these other separate dishes so I, I you know to, that you use toward making the short rib uh, that I never have time for because I'm always sort of scrambling at the last minute but I decided to get a head start this year. And so this weekend I'm going to be making fresh beef broth uh, or beef stock. And so I'm going to be able to freeze it so that then when I the holiday approaches, I'll have the homemade beef, beef stock available. So that eliminates that, that step in the recipe. And so I think I might actually be able to pull it off this year. Congratulations. And also, how dare you? Because now I'm starving to death. It is 11 o'clock a.m. on the East as we record this. It has not gotten to lunch yet. And now I'm starving. Haley, what's going on with you? I moved into my first apartment two months ago. Ah, congratulations. Thank you. And, and this weekend, I had my first real experience with what being an apartment owner means when I was locked out of my house at 2.30 a.m., uh, my, my keys seemed to have fallen off my key ring. And so I, I had to figure out a way to deal with that, which was, number one, calling a locksmith who charged a ridiculous amount of money to drill a hole in my door and then leave it there and, uh, and force me to, <laughs> to put a lock in myself. So I have signed up for locksmithing school. 
which is rather wow. easy. Uh, I've, I've ordered some tools, which should get here at some point next week. And I'm hoping it'll make an interesting story, if not an interesting skill someday, uh, in hopes that something like this never happens again. I fear you may be investing in a soon-to-be archaic skill set. I haven't carried a set of keys in my pocket in years because everything is, you know, touchless now, including my front door lock. Don't, isn't there a, a landlord who's supposed to take care of this sort of thing? He has yet to respond to me, but but hopefully, hopefully within the week. That's the thing, though, is that all the all the buildings in D.C., Virginia are are very old. So while I wish I could have a simple key fob, I'm I'm forced to locksmith myself. Well, I wish you luck in your future landlord tenant court appearance. Um, so I was uh, tapped to do a fair amount of podcasts this week, and I'm very grateful for the honor and opportunity that Rich has given me to host the editors this week. I joined Andy on the Andy McCarthy Report, and I think you should go check that out. It was really fun. We did the whole contours of the Biden scandal and the Trump indictments and also some back and forth over the our disagreements in public over the last couple of weeks, and it was, it was a great conversation, so you should go check that out. But I had the honor yesterday of joining the hosts of the Commentary Podcast, where I spent six years going back and forth with these guys because that's where I used to work and it was very nostalgic for me and I really enjoyed it and I think you should go check that out too when you get the opportunity. But let's move on to editor's picks. Phil, start us off. Um, I'm going to pick Charlie's on um, what is the plan Republicans, which I think sort of of has a lot of truth bombs about what... um, you know, what the Republicans actually think is going to happen when Trump's the nominee, given that not, you know, the rest of the public doesn't see um, all these Trump indictments the same way as the primary electorate does. Um, and so they're basically, if, if things go as they're projected on the course to go right now, um, Republicans will be carrying a millstone around their necks next year and what what's the the plan uh to, to con can deal with that so i think it's worth uh worth reading it was a very good piece Haley. dominic pino had a corner post uh yesterday called wildfires aren't started by an angry mother earth in which he pointed out that unlike what you know the biden administration or upper echelons of government have perpetuated since the start of the the fire in hawaii the tragic fire that energy corporations are in fact greedy and esg loving you know corporations and i think one one needs to only look at california my home state where pg&e has pled guilty to upwards of 80 deaths after a fire in paradise a couple of years ago Uh, Hawaiian Electric admitted that they weren't as focused on fire risks as they should have been, which should rightfully anger people, as Dominic points out. Charlie. I'm going to pick Dominic as well. So that's two in a row on this podcast, and that's two in a row for me. Now, before I do, I just want to issue a caveat here. There has been a great deal of debate about this song by Anthony Oliver, Rich Men North of Richmond. I am engaging here in the debate about the debate. I think it's an excellent song with a uh, mediocre lyrics and that he has a fantastic voice. But it has been extricated from its 
origin and is now a political debate. And we've had a whole bunch of pieces on this at NR. One of them was by Dominic Pino, who is arguing with uh, Nathan and a couple others who have displayed some sympathy with the idea that people in America are downtrodden and that the sentiment expressed in the song should be taken seriously and literally. And as ever, Dominic demonstrates just how cogent he is as a thinker and a writer in taking up these ideas from the root and building and building and building upon them until he reaches a conclusion. That post is called What Our National Conversation on Middle America Misses. You shouldn't miss it. So I want to uh, underscore Haley's pick. This is a Dom day. Uh, Dominic Pino's piece was really great because it hits at the heart of the issue, which is human error, uh, which uh, so many progressives decline to deal with in part because they create the conditions for that human error. Um, from policymakers in Hawaii's focus on renewables to poor management around this utility site to the emergency management functionaries who occupy basically sinecures in this one-party state, this was hardly the wrath of an unforgiving deity, and it was a smart point to make. But I'm going to pick Charlie's Why I Will No Longer Use the Slur Commanders. It's a short piece. It's very incisive, searing, uh, parodic, but also makes a pretty keen point that because there's so much sentiment against this commander's name, which is the new name we call the Washington Redskins, the football team that will always and forever be for its fans, the Washington Redskins, and Native Americans don't at all hate this name, um, that anybody else who wants to change it is basically a bunch of bigots and should be shunned and shamed and uh, no longer occupy a position in American public life. That is going to do it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this show without written express permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Haley. Thank you to the absent Rich Lowry. And thank you to our advertisers, Moink and Made In. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. And we'll see you next time.